Chapter 9 of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chapter 9 The End of the Tether. On turning to descend, Massey perceived the head of Stern, the mate, loitering with his sly, confident smile, his red moustaches and blinking eyes at the foot of the ladder. Stern had been a junior in one of the larger shipping concerns before joining the Safala. He had thrown up his berth, he said, on general principles. The promotion in the employ was very slow, he complained, and he thought it was time for him to try and get on a bit in the world. It seemed as though nobody would ever die or leave the firm. They all stuck fast in their berth till they got mildewed. He was tired of waiting and he feared that when a vacancy did occur, the best servants were by no means sure of being treated fairly. Besides, the captain he had to serve under, Captain Provost, was an unaccountable sort of man, and he fancied had taken a dislike to him for some reason or other, for doing rather more than his bare duty as likely as not. When he had done anything wrong, he could take a talking to like a man, but he expected to be treated like a man too, and not to be addressed invariably as though he were a dog. He had asked Captain Provost plump and plain to tell him where he was at fault, and Captain Provost, in a most scornful way, had told him that he was a perfect officer, and that if he disliked the way he was being spoken to, there was the gangway. He could take himself off ashore at once. But everybody knew what sort of man Captain Provost was. It was no use appealing to the office. Captain Provost had too much influence in the employ. All the same, they had to give him a good character. He made bold to say there was nothing in the world against him, and as he had happened to hear that the mate of the Cephala had been taken to the hospital that morning with a sunstroke, he thought there would be no harm in seeing whether he would not do. He'd come to Captain Wally, freshly shaved, red-faced, thin-flanked, throwing out his lean chest, and had recited his little tale with an open and manly assurance. Now and then his eyelids quivered slightly, his hands would steal up to the end of the flaming moustache, his eyebrows were straight, furry, of a chestnut colour, and the directness of his frank gaze seemed to tremble on the verge of impudence. Captain Wally had engaged him temporarily. Then, the other man, having been ordered home by the doctors, he had remained for the next trip, and then the next. He had now attained permanency, and the performance of his duties was marked by an air of serious, single-minded application. Directly he was spoken to, he began to smile attentively, with a great deference expressed in his whole attitude. But there was, in the rapid winking which went on all the time, something quizzical, as though he had possessed the secret of some universal joke, cheating all creation, and impenetrable to other mortals. Grave and smiling, he watched Massey come down, step by step. When the chief engineer had reached the deck, he swung about, and they found themselves face to face. Matched as to height and utterly dissimilar, they confronted each other as if there had been something between them, something else than the bright strip of sunlight that, falling through the wide lacing of two awnings, cut crosswise the narrow planking of the deck and separated their feet, as it were a stream, something profound and subtle and incalculable, like an unexpressed understanding, a secret mistrust or some sort of fear. At last, Stern, blinking his deep-set eyes and sticking forward his scraped, clean-cut chin, as crimson as the rest of his face, murmured, "'You've seen?' He grazed. "'You've seen?' 
Massey, contemptuous and without raising his yellow, fleshy countenance, replied in the same pitch, Maybe, but if it had been you, we would have been stuck fast in the mud. Pardon me, Mr. Massey, I beg to deny it. Of course, a shipowner may say what he jolly well pleases on his own deck. That's all right. But I beg to get out of my way. The other had a slight start, the impulse of suppressed indignation, perhaps, but held his ground. Massey's downward glance wandered right and left, as though the deck all round stern had been bestrewn with eggs that must not be broken, and he had looked irritably for places where he could set his feet in flight. In the end he too did not move, though there was plenty of room to pass on. "'I heard you say up there,' went on the mate, and a very just remark it was too, that there's always something wrong. "'Eavesdropping is what's wrong with you, Mr Stern.' Now, if you'd only listen to me for a moment, Mr. Massey, sir, I could... You are a sneak, interrupted Massey in a great hurry, and even managed to get so far as to repeat, a common sneak, before the mate had broken in argumentatively. Now, sir, what is it you want? You want... I want... I want... stammered Massey, infuriated and astonished. I want... How do you know that I want anything? How dare you? What do you mean? What are you after? You... Promotion... Stern silenced him with a sort of candid bravado. The engineer's round, soft cheeks quivered still, but he said, quietly enough, "'You're only worrying my head off.' And Stern met him with a confident little smile. "'A chap in business I know, well up in the world he is now, used to tell me that this was the proper way. Always push on to the front,' he would say. "'Keep yourself well before your boss.' Interfere whenever you get a chance. Show him what you know. Worry him into seeing you. That was his advice. Now I know no other boss than you here. You are the owner, and no one else counts for that much in my eyes. See, Mr Massey, I want to get on. I make no secret of it that I am one of the sort that means to get on. These other men to make use of, sir. You haven't arrived at the top of the tree, sir, without finding that out, I dare say. "'Worry a boss in order to get on,' mumbled Massey, as if awestruck by the irreverent originality of the idea. "'I shouldn't wonder if this was just what the Blue Anchor people kicked you out of the employ for. Is that what you call getting on? You shall get on in the same way here, if you aren't careful, I can promise you.' At this Stern hung his head, thoughtful, perplexed, winking hard at the deck. All his attempts to enter into confidential relations with his owner had led of late to nothing better than these dark threats of dismissal, and a threat of dismissal would check him at once into a hesitating silence, as though he were not sure that the proper time for defying it had come. On this occasion he seemed to have lost his tongue for a moment, and Massey, getting in motion, heavily passed him by with an abortive attempt at shouldering. Stern defeated it by stepping aside. He turned then swiftly, opening his mouth very wide, as if to shout something after the engineer, but seemed to think better of it. Always, as he was ready to confess, on the lookout for an opening to get on, it had become an instinct with him to watch the conduct of his immediate superiors for something that one could lay hold of. It was his belief that no skipper in the world would keep his command for a day if only the owners could be made to know. This romantic and naive theory had led him into trouble more than once, but he remained incorrigible, 
and his character was so instinctively disloyal that whenever he joined a ship, the intention of ousting his commander out of the berth and taking his place was always present at the back of his head as a matter of course. It filled the leisure of his waking hours with the reverie of careful plans and compromising discoveries, the dreams of his sleep with images of lucky turns and favourable accidents. Skippers had been known to sicken and die at sea, than which nothing could be better than to give a smart mate a chance of showing what he's made of. They would also tumble overboard sometimes. He had heard of one or two such cases. Others again. But, as it were, constitutionally, he was faithful to the belief that the conduct of no single one of them would stand the test of careful watching by a man who knew what's what and who kept his eyes skinned pretty well all the time. After he had gained a permanent footing on board the Safala, he allowed his perennial hope to rise high. To begin with, it was a great advantage to have an old man for captain, the sort of man, besides, who in the nature of things was likely to give up the job before long from one cause or another. Stern was greatly chagrined, however, to notice that he did not seem anywhere near being past his work yet. Still, these old men go to pieces all at once sometimes. Then there was the owner-engineer close at hand to be impressed by his zeal and steadiness. Stern never for a moment doubted the obvious nature of his own merits. He was really an excellent officer. Only, nowadays, professional merit alone does not take a man along fast enough. A chap must have some push in him and must keep his wits at work, too, to help him forward. He made up his mind to inherit the charge of this steamer if it was to be done at all not indeed estimating the command of the Sofala as a very great catch, but for the reason that, out east especially, to make a start is everything, and one command leads to another. He began by promising himself to behave with great circumspection. Massey's sombre and fantastic humours intimidated him as being outside one's usual sea experience, but he was quite intelligent enough to realise almost from the first that he was there in the presence of an exceptional situation. His peculiar, prying imagination penetrated it quickly. The feeling that there was in it an element which eluded his grasp exasperated his impatience to get on. And so one trip came to an end, then another, and he had begun his third before he saw an opening by which he could step in with any sort of effect. It had all been very queer and very obscure. Something had been going on near him, as if separated by a chasm from the common life and the working routine of the ship, which was exactly like the life and the routine of any other coasting steamer of that class. Then one day he made his discovery. It came to him, after all these weeks of watchful observation and puzzled surmises, suddenly, like the long-sought solution of a riddle that suggests itself to the mind in a flash. Not with the same authority, however. Great heavens! Could it be that? And after remaining thunderstruck for a few seconds, he tried to shake it off with self-contumely, as though it had been the product of an unhealthy bias towards the incredible, the inexplicable, the unheard of, the mad. This, the illuminating moment, had occurred the trip before, on the return passage. They had just left a place of call on the mainland called Pangu. They were steaming straight out of a bay. To the east, a massive headland closed the view, with the tilted edges of the rocky strata showing through its ragged clothing of rank bushes and thorny creepers. The wind had begun to sing in the rigging. 
The sea along the coast, green and as if swollen a little above the line of the horizon, seemed to pour itself over time after time with a slow and thundering fall into the shadow of the leeward cape, and across the wide opening the nearest of a group of small islands stood enveloped in the hazy yellow light of a breezy sunrise. Still farther out, the hummocky tops of other islets peeped out motionless above the water of the channels between, scoured tumultuously by the breeze. The usual track of the Cephala, both going and returning on every trip, led her for a few miles along this reef-infested region. She followed a broad lane of water, dropping astern one after another these crumbs of the earth's crust resembling a squadron of dismasted hulks run in disorder upon a foul ground of rocks and shoals. Some of these fragments of land appeared indeed no bigger than a stranded ship, Others, quite flat, lay awash like anchored rafts, like ponderous black rafts of stone. Several, heavily timbered and round at the base, emerged in squat domes of deep green foliage that shuddered darkly all over to the flying touch of cloud shadows driven by the sudden gusts of the squally season. The thunderstorms of the coast broke frequently over that cluster, it turned then shadowy in its whole extent. It turned more dark and as if more still in the play of fire, as if more impenetrably silent in the peals of thunder. Its blurred shapes vanished, dissolving utterly at times in the thick rain, to reappear clear-cut and black in the stormy light against the grey sheet of the cloud, scattered on the slaty round table of the sea unscathed by storms, resisting the work of years, unfretted by the strife of the world, there it lay unchanged as on that day, four hundred years ago, when first beheld by western eyes from the deck of a high-pooped caravel. It was one of those secluded spots that may be found on the busy sea, as on land you come sometimes upon the clustered houses of a hamlet, untouched by men's restlessness, untouched by their need, by their thought, and as if forgotten by time itself. The lives of uncounted generations had passed it by, and the multitudes of sea-fowl, urging their way from all the points of the horizon to sleep on the outer rocks of the group, unrolled the converging evolutions of their flight in long, sombre streamers upon the glow of the sky. The palpitating cloud of their wings soared and stooped over the pinnacles of the rocks, over the rocks slender like spires, squat like martello towers, over the pyramidal heaps of fallen ruins, over the lines of bald boulders showing like a wall of stones battered to pieces and scorched by lightning, with a sleepy clear glimmer of water in every bridge. The noise of their continuous and violent screaming filled the air. This great noise would meet the Sofala coming up from Batu Beru. It would meet her on quiet evenings, a pitiless and savage clamour, enfeebled by distance, the clamour of seabirds settling to rest and struggling for a footing at the end of the day. No one noticed it, especially on board. It was the voice of their ship's unerring landfall, ending the steady stretch of a hundred miles. She had made good her course. She had run her distance till the punctual islets began to emerge one by one, the points of rocks, the hummocks of earth, and the cloud of birds hovered, the restless cloud emitting a strident and cruel uproar, the sound of the familiar scene, the living part of the broken land beneath, of the outspread sea and of the high sky without a flaw. 
But when the Safala happened to close with the land after sunset, she would find everything very still there under the mantle of the night. All would be still, dumb, almost invisible, but for the blotting out of the low constellations occulted in turns behind the vague masses of the islets whose true outlines eluded the eye amongst the dark spaces of the heaven. And the ship's three lights resembling three stars, the red and the green with the white above, the three lights like three companion stars wandering on the earth held their unswerving course for the passage at the southern end of the group. Sometimes there were human eyes open to watch them come nearer, travelling smoothly in the sombre void, the eyes of a naked fisherman in his canoe floating over a reef. He thought drowsily, Ah, the fire-ship that once in every moon goes in and comes out of Pangu Bay. More he did not know of her. And just as he had detected the faint rhythm of the propeller beating the calm water a mile and a half away, the time would come for the Cephala to alter her course, the lights would swing off him their triple beam and disappear. A few miserable half-naked families, a sort of outcast tribe of long-haired, lean and wild-eyed people, strove for their living in this lonely wilderness of islets, lying like an abandoned outwork of the land at the gates of the bay. Within the knots and loops of the rocks, the water rested more transparent than crystal under their crooked and leaky canoes scooped out of the trunk of a tree. The forms of the bottom undulated slightly to the dip of a paddle, and the men seemed to hang in the air. They seemed to hang enclosed within the fibres of a dark, sodden log, fishing patiently in a strange, unsteady, pellucid green air above the shoals. Their bodies stalked brown and emaciated as if dried up in the sunshine. Their lives ran out silently. The homes where they were born went to rest and died. Flimsy sheds of rushes and coarse grass eked out with a few ragged mats were hidden out of sight from the open sea. No glow of their household fires ever kindled for a seaman a red spark upon the blind night of the group. And the calms of the coast the flaming long calms of the equator, the unbreathing concentrated calms like the deep introspection of a passionate nature brooded awfully for days and weeks together over the unchangeable inheritance of their children, till at last the stones, hot like live embers, scorched the naked soul, till the water clung warm and sickly and as if thickened about the legs of lean men with girded loins wading thigh-deep in the pale blaze of the shallows. And it would happen now and then that the Sophala, through some delay in one of the ports of call, would heave in sight, making for Pangu Bay, as late as noonday. Only a blurring cloud at first, the thin mist of her smoke would arise mysteriously from an empty point on the clear line of sea and sky. The taciturn fishermen within the reefs would extend their lean arms towards the offing, and the brown figures stooping on the tiny beaches, the brown figures of men, women and children grubbing in the sand in search of turtles' eggs, would rise up, crooked elbow aloft and hand over the eyes, to watch this monthly apparition glide straight on, swerve off and go by. Their ears caught the panting of that ship, their eyes followed her till she passed between the two capes of the mainland, going at full speed, as though she hoped to make her way unchecked into the very bosom of the earth. 
On such days the luminous sea would give no sign of the dangers lurking on both sides of her path. Everything remained still, crushed by the overwhelming power of the light, and the whole group, opaque in the sunshine, the rocks resembling pinnacles, the rocks resembling spires, the rocks resembling ruins, the forms of islets resembling beehives, resembling molehills, the islets recalling the shapes of haystacks, the contours of ivy-clad towers, would stand reflected together upside down in the unwrinkled water like carved toys of ebony disposed on the silver plate glass of a mirror. The first touch of blowing weather would envelop the whole at once in the spume of the windward breakers, as if in a sudden cloud-like burst of steam, and the clear water seemed fairly to boil in all the passages. The provoked sea outlined exactly in a design of angry foam the wide base of the group, the submerged level of broken waste and refuse left over from the building of the coast nearby, projecting its dangerous spurs all awash far into the channel and bristling with wicked long spits, often a mile long, with deadly spits made of froth and stones. And even nothing more than a brisk breeze, as on that morning, the voyage before, when the Safala left Pangu Bay early, and Mr. Stern's discovery was to blossom out like a flower of incredible and evil aspect from the tiny seed of instinctive suspicion. Even such a breeze had enough strength to tear the placid mask from the face of the sea. To Stern, gazing with indifference, it had been like a revelation to behold for the first time the dangers marked by the hissing livid patches on the water as distinctly as on the engraved paper of a chart. It came into his mind that this was the sort of day most favourable for a stranger attempting the passage, a clear day, just windy enough for the sea to break on every ledge, buoying, as it were, the channel plainly to the side, whereas during a calm you had nothing to depend on but the compass and the practised judgment of your eye. And yet the successive captains of the Safala had had to take her through at night more than once. Nowadays you could not afford to throw away six or seven hours of a steamer's time. That you couldn't. But then use is everything, and with proper care. The channel was broad and safe enough. The main point was to hit upon the entrance correctly in the dark, for if a man got himself involved in that stretch of broken water over yonder, he would never get out with a whole ship, if he ever got out at all. This was Stern's last train of thought, independent of the great discovery. He had just seen to the securing of the anchor, and had remained forward idling away a moment or two. The captain was in charge of the bridge. With a slight yawn he had turned away from his survey of the sea, and had leaned his shoulders against the fish davit. These, properly speaking, were the very last moments of ease he was to know on board the Safala. All the instants that came after were to be pregnant with purpose and intolerable with perplexity. No more idle, random thoughts. The discovery would put them on the rack, till sometimes he wished to goodness he had been fool enough not to make it at all. And yet, if his chance to get on rested on the discovery of something wrong, he could not have hoped for a greater stroke of luck. End of chapter 9